Section 40 of Character. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Character by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 11, Part C. Companionship in Marriage. A man's moral character is, necessarily, powerfully influenced by his wife. A lower nature will drag him down, as a higher will lift him up. The former will deaden his sympathies, dissipate his energies, and distort his life, while the latter, by satisfying his affections, will strengthen his moral nature, and by giving him repose, tend to energize his intellect. Not only so, but a woman of high principles will insensibly elevate the aims and purposes of her husband, as one of low principles will unconsciously degrade them. De Tocqueville was profoundly impressed by this truth. He entertained the opinion that man could have no such mainstay in life as the companionship of a wife of good temper and high principle. He says that in the course of his life, he had seen even weak men display real public virtue because they had by their side a woman of noble character who sustained them in their career and exercised a fortifying influence on their views of public duty. Whilst, on the contrary, he had still oftener seen men of great and generous instincts transformed into vulgar self-seekers by contact with women of narrow natures, devoted to an imbecile love of pleasure, and from whose minds the grand motive of duty was altogether absent. De Tocqueville himself had the good fortune to be blessed with an admirable wife, and in his letters to his intimate friends he spoke most gratefully of the comfort and support he derived from her sustaining courage, her equanimity of temper, and her nobility of character. The more, indeed, that de Tocqueville saw of the world and of practical life, the more convinced he became of the necessity of healthy domestic conditions for a man's growth in virtue and goodness. Especially did he regard marriage as of inestimable importance in regard to a man's true happiness, and he was accustomed to speak of his own as the wisest action of his life. Many external circumstances of happiness, he said, have been granted to me, but more than all, I have to thank heaven for having bestowed on me true domestic happiness, the first of human blessings. As I grow older, the portion of my life which in my youth I used to look down upon, every day becomes more important in my eyes, and would now easily console me for the loss of all the rest. And again, writing to his bosom friend, de Kergorlet, he said, Of all the blessings which God has given to me, the greatest of all in my eyes is to have lighted on Marie. You cannot imagine what she is in great trials. Usually so gentle, she then becomes strong and energetic. She watches me without my knowing it. She softens, calms, and strengthens me in difficulties which disturb me but leave her serene. In another letter he says, I cannot describe to you the happiness yielded in the long run by the habitual society of a woman in whose soul all that is good in your own is reflected naturally and even improved. When I say or do a thing which seems to me to be perfectly right, I read immediately in Marie's countenance an expression of proud satisfaction which elevates me. And so, when my conscience reproaches me, 
her face instantly clouds over. Although I have great power over her mind, I see with pleasure that she awes me, and so long as I love her as I do now, I am sure that I shall never allow myself to be drawn into anything that is wrong. In the retired life which de Tocqueville led as a literary man, political life being closed against him by the inflexible independence of his character, his health failed and he became ill, irritable, and querulous. While proceeding with his last work, L'Ancien Régime et la Révolution, he wrote, After sitting at my desk for five or six hours, I can write no longer. The machine refuses to act. I am in great want of rest, and of a long rest. If you add all the perplexities that besiege an author towards the end of his work, you will be able to imagine a very wretched life. I could not go on with my task if it were not for the refreshing calm of Marie's companionship. It would be impossible to find a disposition forming a happier contrast to my own. In my perpetual irritability of body and mind, she is a providential resource that never fails me. M. Guizot was, in like manner, sustained and encouraged amidst his many vicissitudes and disappointments by his noble wife. If he was treated with harshness by his political enemies, his consolation was in the tender affection which filled his home with sunshine. Though his public life was bracing and stimulating, he felt, nevertheless, that it was cold and calculating, and neither filled the soul nor elevated the character. Man longs for a happiness, he says in his memoirs, more complete and more tender than that which all the labors and triumphs of active exertion and public importance can bestow. What I know today, at the end of my race, I have felt when it began, and during its continuance. Even in the midst of great undertakings, domestic affections form the basis of life, and the most brilliant career has only superficial and incomplete enjoyments if a stranger to the happy ties of family and friendship. The circumstances connected with M. Guizot's courtship and marriage are curious and interesting. While a young man living by his pen in Paris, writing books, reviews, and translations, he formed a casual acquaintance with Mademoiselle Pauline de Moulin, a lady of great ability, then editor of the Publiciste. A severe domestic calamity having befallen her, she fell ill and was unable for a time to carry on the heavy literary work connected with her journal at this juncture a letter without any signature reached her one day offering a supply of articles which the writer hoped would be worthy of the reputation of the publiciste the articles duly arrived were accepted and published they dealt with a great variety of subjects art literature theatricals and general criticism when the editor at length recovered from her illness the writer of the articles disclosed himself it was m guizot an intimacy sprang up between them which ripened into mutual affection and before long mademoiselle de moulin became his wife from that time forward she shared in all her husband's joys and sorrows as well as in many of his labors before they became united he asked her if she thought she should ever become dismayed at the vicissitudes of his destiny which he then saw looming before him she replied that he might assure himself that she would always passionately enjoy his triumphs but never heave a sigh over his defeats when m guizot became first minister of louis philippe she wrote to a friend i now see my husband much less than i desire but still i see him if god spares us to each other 
I shall always be, in the midst of every trial and apprehension, the happiest of beings. Little more than six months after these words were written, the devoted wife was laid in her grave, and her sorrowing husband was left thenceforth to tread the journey of life alone. Burke was especially happy in his union with Miss Nugent, a beautiful, affectionate, and high-minded woman. The agitation and anxiety of his public life was more than compensated by his domestic happiness, which seems to have been complete. It was a saying of Burke, thoroughly illustrative of his career, that to love the little platoon we belong to in society is the germ of all public affections. His description of his wife in her youth is probably one of the finest word portraits in the language. She is handsome, but it is a beauty not arising from features, from complexion, or from shape. She has all three in a high degree, but it is not by these she touches the heart. It is all that sweetness of temper, benevolence, innocence, and sensibility, which a face can express that forms her beauty. She has a face that just raises your attention at first sight. It grows on you every moment, and you wonder it did no more than raise your attention at first. Her eyes have a mild light, but they awe when she pleases. They command like a good man out of office, not by authority, but by virtue. Her stature is not tall. She is not made to be the admiration of everybody, but the happiness of one. She has all the firmness that does not exclude delicacy. She has all the softness that does not imply weakness. Her voice is a soft, low music, not formed to rule in public assemblies, but to charm those who can distinguish a company from a crowd. It has this advantage. You must come close to her to hear it. To describe her body describes her mind. One is the transcript of the other. Her understanding is not shown in the variety of matters it exerts itself on, but in the goodness of the choice she makes. She does not display it so much in saying or doing striking things as in avoiding such as she ought not to say or do. No person of so few years can know the world better. No person was ever less corrupted by the knowledge of it. Her politeness flows rather from a natural disposition to oblige than from any rules on that subject, and therefore never fails to strike those who understand good breeding and those who do not. She has a steady and firm mind, which takes no more from the solidity of the female character than the solidity of marble does from its polish and luster. She has such virtues as make us value the truly great of our own sex. She has all the winning graces that make us love even the faults we see in the weak and beautiful in hers. Let us give as a companion picture the not less beautiful delineation of a husband, that of Colonel Hutchinson, the Commonwealth man, by his widow. Shortly before his death he enjoined her not to grieve at the common rate of desolate women and faithful to his injunction instead of lamenting his loss she indulged her noble sorrow in depicting her husband as he had lived they who dote on mortal excellences she says in her introduction to the life when by the inevitable fate of all things frail their adored idols are taken from them may let loose the winds of passion to bring in a flood of sorrow whose ebbing tides carry away the dear memory of what they have lost and when comfort is essayed to such mourners, commonly all objects are removed out of their view, which may with their remembrance renew the grief. And in time these remedies succeed. 
and oblivion's curtain is by degrees drawn over the dead face and things less lovely are liked while they are not viewed together with that which was most excellent but i that am under a command not to grieve at the common rate of desolate women while i am studying which way to moderate my woe and if it were possible to augment my love i can for the present find out none more just to your dear father nor consolatory to myself than the preservation of his memory which i need not gild with such flattering commendations as hired preachers do equally give to the truly and titularly honourable a naked undressed narrative speaking the simple truth of him will deck him with more substantial glory than all the panegyrics the best pens could ever consecrate to the virtues of the best men the following is the wife's portrait of colonel hutchinson as a husband for conjugal affection to his wife it was such in him as whosoever would draw out a rule of honor kindness and religion to be practised in that estate need no more but exactly draw out his example never man had a greater passion for a woman nor a more honorable esteem of a wife yet he was not uxorious nor remitted he that just rule which it was her honor to obey but managed the reins of government with such prudence and affection that she who could not delight in such an honorable and advantageable subjection must have wanted a reasonable soul he governed by persuasion which he never employed but to things honorable and profitable to herself he loved her soul and her honor more than her outside and yet he had ever for her person a constant indulgence exceeding the common temporary passion of the most luxurious fools if he esteemed her at a higher rate than she in herself could have deserved he was the author of that virtue he doted on while she only reflected his own glories upon him all that she was was him while he was here and all that she is now at best is but his pale shade so liberal was he to her and of so generous a temper that he hated the mention of severed purses his estate being so much at her disposal that he would never receive an account of anything she expended so constant was he in his love that when she ceased to be young and lovely he began to show most fondness he loved her at such a kind and generous rate as words cannot express yet even this which was the highest love he or any man could have was bounded by a superior he loved her in the lord as his fellow-creature not his idol but in such a manner as showed that an affection founded on the just rules of duty far exceeds every way all the irregular passions in the world he loved god above her and all the other dear pledges of his heart and for his glory cheerfully resigned them lady rachel russell is another of the women of history celebrated for her devotion and faithfulness as a wife she labored and pleaded for her husband's release so long as she could do so with honor but when she saw that all was in vain she collected her courage and strove by her example to strengthen the resolution of her dear lord and when his last hour had nearly come and his wife and children waited to receive his parting embrace she brave to the end that she might not add to his distress concealed the agony of her grief under a seeming composure and they parted after a tender adieu in silence after she had gone lord william said now the bitterness of death is past End of section forty.